0: Today is our third sermon in a series on the scripture. Uh, Two weeks ago, Pastor Brian opened this sermon series with a call for us to learn and to trust the Bible. Last week, Scott Logan looked more deeply into the life and teachings of Jesus and how that was propelled by an understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. Today, we'll look at how the Bible is a great story and provides an alternative viewpoint from other stories, one on which we should base our lives. There are practice guides out in the lobby if you have not picked one up yet. It corresponds with each week that we go through this series, so please get one. It um, has information in here on how to practice this series in both community and individually. And I also want to remind you that if you have any questions about something that's brought up in one of the sermons in this series, or just questions in general about the scriptures that we haven't discussed over this course of the weeks, please send your questions to questions at yorkalliance.org. You can email them there. Again, that's questions at yorkalliance.org. And Pastor Brian or one of the other church staff will get back to you and address that. So my grandfather growing up would tell us a story. He told us that when the U.S. was about to enter World War II, he dropped out of art school and joined the Army Air Corps to become a pilot. Near the end of his training, the plane he was flying unexpectedly crashed and his instructor was killed. My grandfather was unconscious and he was cut out of the aircraft and he sustained a crushed pelvis, a fractured vertebrae, injuries that required 100 stitches on his head, and he even lost seven teeth. When he regained consciousness, he was paralyzed. After three and a half months of healing, he miraculously began to walk. And instead of taking the discharge papers that had been handed to him, he completed his pilot's training and was assigned to fly a B-17 bomber aircraft. As he was fighting in Europe, his plane was shot down by the Germans, and though he made a safe landing to save his entire crew, they were all taken as prisoners of war. The first camp that he was placed in had just had this great escape, and so the Germans were really cracking down on the prisoners, and there was no way for them to escape. However, the camps kept filling up, and so the prisoners were often taken on what were known as death marches. One march in particular, there was extreme snow and sub-zero weather, and it brought death to many of the prisoners. My grandfather, however, grew up speaking some German and did what he could to engage with the German officers in order to aid in his survival. After 11 months as a prisoner, the war ended, and my grandfather was liberated. This is a larger-than-life story, that for a young girl, it often filled me with awe and wonder. How could he have survived these things? Is the story even true? Could I have done what he did? And yet, this story also taught me the values of persistence, determination, perseverance, and survival. It spoke to me how to survive in the most difficult of times. We all have stories similar to this in our lives stories that become legacy in our family, stories that we hold on to, and they all shape us and mold us into who we are and how we interact within the world. Some of these stories are small and they have little impact on our lives. While others are grand, and more often than not, as we tell and retell them, they become centerpieces in our lives, much like this one of my grandfather, and they help form our identity. Sometimes the stories that shape us are positive, uplifting, and sometimes they're a reflection of negative thoughts or events. The truth is that for most of us, we have stories in our lives that are a mixture of both the positive and the negative, stories that are good and stories that are bad, stories that propel us, and stories that give us caution. Some we want to latch onto, and others we just want to push away. In fact, since the very beginning of time, every civilization or people group has sought to answer all aspects of life through story. From the great existential questions of who am I and where did I come from to more personal contemplations, what is my relationship to the people around me? And what do I do with that? My youngest son, who's the only one of my kids that was born over here at York Hospital, went through a time when he was around three or four, and every time we passed the hospital, he would look up at the hospital and say in his little little boy voice, Mommy, tell me how I got born. When he asked that question, I felt like for him, it was more than just wanting me to repeat the story, but it was a question of meaning, of position and significance. He knew that was his hospital, not his siblings' hospital. They weren't born there. For him, as the youngest, the story of his birth, coupled with the presence of the hospital, helped him establish his significance and standing among his siblings. He is important, too. That is his hospital and his story. As young people, we are all shaped by the stories of our family. They tell us how we got born, and they mold our understanding of the world around us and give meanings to words like comfort, security, significance, and relationships. But as we move into our teenage and young adult years, suddenly the stories of our families do not satisfy us, and we seek elsewhere the voices of friends and advertisements and society at large play a greater role in our shaping. But underneath each of these stories, and whether we're conscious of it or not, our culture, the norms and actions and thought processes of the world around us are forming who we are and what we become. You see, the way our society is shaped and the stories we are told and we are faced with not only build us, But as we move through life, we need to reconcile all of the stories we have heard. Those which we have been told and those which we seek. So we must decide what story becomes our story. Before we go into today's passage, I want to talk a bit about what makes a good story. What is it that makes some stories continue to resonate with us and keep them at the forefront of our minds? That makes them timeless treasures? Is it the carefully crafted words that brings the tale to our ears? Or is it the adventures, like the swords clashing and the mountains climbed? Well, I think those things are components to good stories. I think there are two more important elements that make stories last across time and culture and history. The first idea is is that lasting stories are transcendent. These are stories that push us beyond the human experience. They surpass humanly conceivable limits, expectations, and understanding. Stories that are transcendent in nature point to something beyond ourselves and give us something to hope for, to strive for, or a mystery to uncover. The story of Cinderella, for example, that came to us from Germany in the 1800s. And thanks to Walt Disney, most of us have a very specific version of that story in our heads of a plump fairy godmother dressed in blue and a lady that talks to mice. But the elements of that story are not limited to Western European culture. As a matter of fact, there are over 500 versions of that story around the world. The oldest known version comes to us from China, which dates back to the ninth century. And so you see, though the cultural context changes, the core elements are the same. A neglected girl who moves from rags to riches and good versus evil. So today we're going to look at how the Bible is a book or a library of books that transcends space and time, culture and politics, and is a complete story for us to enter into as readers in contemporary society. So our first point today is the Bible is a transcendent story. The second element that, identif- that helps solidify a story in the canons of history is the element of personal application. So this could come through identifying with a character, his or her actions. It could come through self-reflection, like this little nudge in our souls that says something needs to change. This could be a moral element written into the story. And traditionally, actually, throughout history, all stories had were told for a moral component. It's only relatively recently in society that we have stories for mere entertainment and no moral. So our second point that we'll look at today is the Bible as a personal story. And then it is this coming together of transcendence and personal application that gives a story power. It's this intersection of a story pointing to something so far beyond us that we stand in wonder, yet speak so personally to our hearts that we can't help but be changed. Which leads to the third point we'll talk about today, and that's the Bible as an alternative story. So today we're going to be in the passage of Luke chapter 4, and as you turn there, Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30, I'm going to give you a little context for our story before we read it. So the Jews at this time were living under Roman rule. Their empire was expanding, and by the time we get to Luke chapter 4, most of the Middle East, Northern Africa, and Europe were subject to Roman rule. This was a pervasive and ever-strengthening force that one would not want to mess with. The Jews had very little autonomy in terms of their everyday life. They were subject to the authority of Caesar. They had to pay him taxes and submit to anything he wanted. Life was difficult, unfair, and unjust. My sense is that the people were tired. They were clinging tightly to the one area that they were allowed to maintain. That was their religion. They were allowed to practice how they wanted as long as they did it peaceably and did not fall out of line with the Romans. But even as they tried to do this, the Romans could do whatever they pleased with the Jews. I imagine this was a great time of political tension, nervousness, and fear. The Jews might have felt like that as long as they kept their heads down and served their God and obeyed the Romans, however spiteful they felt in doing so, they would survive. And yet this unsettled feeling created a longing in them for the coming and promised Messiah. They were eagerly looking for him, and though he lived among them, they did not see him. This coming Messiah we know is Jesus, who is roughly 30 years old at the start of our passage. He was raised in this society with this tension and with a people that stuck together and intentionally set themselves apart from other people. So Jesus had been baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist, who had prepared the way for him to come. When Jesus was baptized in Luke chapter 3, the heavens opened up and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove. A voice came from heaven, the voice of God, his father, who said, You are my son, whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. Immediately after the baptism, Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the desert where he was for 40 days. He ate nothing during this time and was tempted by the devil to essentially give up his kingship and to submit to the power of the devil. Yet Jesus stood firm on the foundation of the scripture that he knew, and he didn't fail. So after all of these experiences, the Holy Spirit descending upon him of being affirmed by his father, of being drawn into a desert place and being under intense temptation and scrutiny, he returns to his hometown of Nazareth in the region of Galilee. His identity is squarely solidified by his father in heaven. Yet he carries the stories of his culture and his people with him. This is where our passage opens in Luke chapter 4. I'm going to ask Jim to come up and read the scripture.
1: Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14. <coughs> and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and the report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, Today, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away.
0: Thank you, Jim. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for bringing us here this morning. We thank you that it's not an accident and that you want us to hear the words. These are your words, Lord. This is your scripture. Pray that you'll grow the seeds that you have planted in our hearts today. I pray that we will go out a changed people. We thank you for your love and your care for us. And we thank you um, that your hand is always extended to us. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Jesus here is full of the Spirit. And he's been traveling all over the countryside preaching and teaching. And people like what they hear. They're saying, pay attention to this guy. What he's saying is good. And so after he does some traveling around and speaks to people, he returns to his hometown of Nazareth. And as he does regularly, he enters the synagogue to teach. So what he does here is pretty normal for a teacher back then. He stood up to read from a scroll that was handed to him, and then he sat down to teach from the scripture. The eyes of the hearers were on him because they were waiting for a good word from him. They, they were eager for him to teach. And yet we'll see as we unpack this passage that everything gets turned upside down in only a way that God and the gospel of Jesus Christ can turn things upside down. That the expectations and the cultural context through which the hearers came to receive the word were upheaved through, through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so this leads us to our first point today, the Bible as a transcendent story. There's a longing inside all of us a longing that forces us to seek out something that's greater than us. It's it's that something that all throughout history has made men and women dream and explore and press into the mysterious. It's that thing that has propelled us to go to space and explore the depths of the ocean. And it's that something inside each one of us that as we go through our lives on a daily basis, we say, there must be something more it's often this dissatisfaction with the tangible that forces our souls to cry out for that which is greater. We feel limited by the things that we can touch, and they don't nourish that longing inside of us. And yet, because of our own weaknesses and limitations, we keep trying to fill our souls with things that leave us empty. And so we long. We long for something bigger than ourselves. You see, back in Genesis 2, when God created man, the very breath of God filled man's lungs. And that is how he became a living being. It is that breath within us, when not breathing in sync with the breath of God, when that spirit within us is not in alignment with his spirit, that we look for tra- something transcendent, something that surpasses the ordinary, that is exceptional that is not subject to the limitations of this physical universe. Blaise Pascal, who was a French philosopher and mathematician that lived in the 1600s, you might remember him from math class in Pascal's Triangle. He was one of these child prodigies that knew the ins and outs of math and science by the age of 16. Knowledge and understanding just poured from his brain. But look at what he says in his writings about the longings of man. What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace? Then he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled with only an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself." What Pascal is essentially saying here is that we all have this God-shaped hole in our hearts, a bottomless abyss inside each one of us that we would do anything to fill. This drives our spiritual quest for understanding and our need to fill it with something. And what we long for, what we long for is the very breath of God. His extraordinary, eternal characteristics that break the bounds of all we know or think we know. The Bible says that Jesus was with God from the very beginning of creation. We see Jesus all throughout Scripture. The Old Testament constantly gives uh, glimpses into his coming. And, of course, Jesus is in the New Testament. Even in the book of Revelation, all of heaven is crying out, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Singing those praises both to God and to the Lamb, Jesus It is through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that we see all throughout the scriptures that points us to the transcendent. So we see here in this scripture, in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus enters the synagogue, the Jewish hearers had that longing inside of them. They wanted a good word that would feed their souls and give them a, a glimpse into something greater than the situations they were in. And Jesus gave them that. So back then, the Torah, which would be each book of the Bible that existed at the time, they were on a different scroll. So Jesus was handed a scroll from the book of Isaiah. He knew the scripture of Isaiah well enough that he could turn, that he could scroll, I guess, turn to the scroll, um, that that he wanted to read that predicted his coming and anointing as Messiah. And what we see here in verse 18 is um, Isaiah 61 in this passage, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. It immediately establishes the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, the Father, God, Lord, and then me here that Jesus is reading is, is him, is me, is Jesus, or the Messiah. So as I stated previously, Jesus was baptized by the Spirit, and here he is confirming his, that he is the Messiah. This is a passage the people would have known well. They would have had it memorized, and they understood what Jesus was saying. Though they may not have understood that he was saying he was the Messiah. But he states in verse 21 that today the scripture is fulfilled in in your hearing. As Jesus goes on to teach the passage he had just read, the words that the people heard were gracious and fulfilling and encouraging to them. They were amazed at the words that came from his lips. You see, there's something about the way that Jesus taught this scripture that was giving the hearers a picture of something greater than themselves, something that suggested mystery, something that was transcendent. And because Jesus was filled with the Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit was in him and working through him and opening his words and opening the hearer's ears so they could sense this level of transcendence. And at first that was enough for him. They were amazed and they nodded their heads in agreement. But then something happened and the dynamic in the room changed. The people started to question the validity of Jesus. Jesus isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. It's easy for us to read this story today and criticize the response that the people had. We wonder how could they have been so blind and why were their hearts so hard? But I think it's important for us to remember two things. And the first thing is that they did not have the complete story like we do. They hadn't yet witnessed the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and they did not have the Bible written in its entirety, nor did they have centuries of scholarship reading and interpretation like we do today. But I think the second thing we need to remember that's probably even more important is that the hearers are not much different than ourselves. So we're not wearing linen robes today and we're not going home and pulling our water from our wells, right? Our living conditions are different, but our hearts are the same. We are subject to the same sinful conditions of our hearts as they had in theirs. We're subject to the same joys, the same sorrows, and the same blinders that they had. So we, like the Jewish hearers, come to the story with our own lens, hoping to hear exactly what we want to hear. Which leads us to our second point, the Bible as a personal story. So as I said, great stories give us a taste of the transcendent, but they also have a value for the reader on a personal level. There's something that the reader can resonate with, and this can come through the storyline, the character, or an overarching moral. And so a good story takes us from something which is greater than life itself, Something outside of us and forces us to reflect upon ourselves, it becomes a personal story. In verse 22, the people start to question Jesus' authority and the way he's talking. They recognize Jesus as someone they grew up with. The boys played in the fields with him, they know his mother and father. So this story is also paralleled in Matthew 13 and and Mark 6. And in both of those passages, the questions that the people are asking are expanded upon. They say, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all of his sisters with us? where then did this man get all these things? And Jesus, in his way of knowing what people are thinking and saying, responds to their questions with a proverb. In verse 21, he says, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Jesus here is saying, You don't want to believe what I have to say unless I can prove myself to you. You want miracles. You want to be healed. Then you will believe. You can't just hear my words and believe. And so Jesus, he doesn't give them miracles. Instead, he gives them two stories. He takes these stories that they know, and he turns them upside down. And then he forces them to look at their own hearts. So as I mentioned earlier, when we hear a story, we often come to it with our own cultural context, and we often anticipate how the story will end based on what we know of who we are and our position in the world. So these hearers in Luke chapter 4, they wanted a story about them. They wanted a story about how they would be blessed by God. And in fact, I think they wanted Jesus to affirm that he was one of them, that he was who that he was who they wanted him to be. And yet Jesus, through these stories, sets himself apart, and then he rocks their thinking. In verse 24, in verse 25, he says, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in in Elijah's time. And when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land, Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy, in the time of Elijah the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. You see, both of these stories are about God's intervention in time of need. One takes place, the one with Elijah, during a severe famine, and how God provides food for a starving and desperate widow. God met her physical needs. And then the second story, the story of Elijah, is a story of physical healing from leprosy, or it could have been any number of skin diseases that were prevalent during the time. God healed Naaman's body. And so, what these two stories have in common is the underlying idea that God cares for all people, that his work is outside of just one nation, the Israelites. These stories show how God healed the pagans. The pagans were people who did not believe in the one true God. And God chose to heal the pagans during this time when he could have healed any number or saved any number of Israelites during the famine. So you see, Jesus here at the very beginning of his ministry is making a proclamation that he is here for all people. And this baton is carried throughout the New Testament. And even after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Paul is tasked with bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. But what happens here in Luke chapter 4 is that the Jews who are listening to Jesus become infuriated. They don't want to think that their God is the God of all people. They want their God for themselves. They want God to work on their behalf in the way they want him to work. Remember, they're under Roman rule, and many of them are intentionally distancing themselves from the world around them. They're staying within their bubbles and practices and not engaging with society. They have closed themselves off to protect themselves and their people. So Jesus' statements convicted those in the synagogue that day. It forced them to look differently at the scriptures that they thought they knew, the stories of Elijah and Elijah, and it forced them to look at themselves and what they thought of other people. So what was their reaction? We see in verse 29, "...they got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built, in order to throw him down the cliff." On the one hand, we, can, we might read this and we might say, that's a little extreme, right? But on the other hand, how many of us do that in our own hearts when we approach scripture? When we hear something from the word of God, do we quickly dismiss it and say, that doesn't pertain to me? Or do we say, that's not what God is saying in that scripture because that's not what I think he would want to say based on what I know about him? Are we making it more about ourselves than about God? If we can answer yes to any of those questions, then we are as guilty as the hearers of trying to throw Jesus off the brow of the cliff. And I, and I think something even worse. We're actually guilty of throwing Jesus off the brow of our hearts. As the passage here comes to a close, Jesus walks right through the crowd and he goes on his way. Verse 30 says, But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. It's almost as if the rage and the tension of the people just fall away from Jesus, and he walks away. Jesus can do that because he's greater than all of their emotions. He's greater than their preconceived notions of what's right and wrong. In fact, Jesus is God in human form. And so while the people are all wrapped up in the mortal things that tie them into knots, Jesus still has work to do in other places. And so he just walks away. After all, he's transcendent. And if they don't want a taste of something greater than themselves, and if they don't want to make his story their personal story, he'll just move on. Which leads us to our last point. The Bible as an alternative story. So what does this mean for us today? Our families all have stories. Our culture has stories. Our society has stories. And all of these seek to, they press on us, and they seek to mold us and shape us into who we are and our understanding of the world around us. Many of these stories are great stories that we could call our own. But there is one similarity about them. They all fall short. They are not the inspired words of God. Pastor Brian pointed us to 2 Peter chapter 1 a couple weeks ago, where it says in verse 20 and 21 No prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origins in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we know that this text. This text is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It was written through men, but it is the very voice of God. When we read scripture, we hear God's voice. The voice of an all-loving, unfailing, ever-present, righteous, just, and sovereign God. When we engage the scriptures, we engage a complete story of mankind from his very beginnings to the end and everything in between. We get a better understanding of how man tries and fails and tries and fails, how he experiences hardship in this fallen world, and how uncertainty and longing fill his soul. And then when we engage scripture, we gain an understanding of God His beauty, his mighty power as he speaks into existence all of creation and how he rules over all the domains of the earth. We see how though in his greatness, he cares for the smallest and the weakest of us. Not only the sparrow and the lily of the field, but also those who are poor and oppressed and just stuck. And in the middle of this, as we identify with the struggles of man and also marvel at the transcendence of God, we find one man, one man that reconciles it all, that fills that void right in the middle, and that's Jesus. You see, Jesus shows us how to bring the kingdom of God down to earth, Jesus, who as a young boy had to learn the scriptures, he had to discipline himself to study and to memorize. And he grew up with stories around him just like us. He had to decide that he was going to enter into the story that was laid before him. I think too often we take a backseat approach to our relationship with God. We feel like we have to succumb to what has been given to us. to the difficulties of life. But the reality is, is that when we choose to enter into God's story, the story of the Bible, and we seek to explore it for what it is and not what we want it to be, we find a world that is both transcendent and personal. So how do we do that? How do we embrace the story of the God of the Bible? I have a couple thoughts here. And the first is that we have to be willing to engage the Bible directly. Too often when we say we're reading the Bible or doing a devotion, we pick up somebody else's book and we read this commentary and there might be a little verse in there and and then we move on. But the commentary is not the inspired word of God. This Bible is. And while I'm not dismissing commentary because I certainly used it in preparation for this sermon, and there's a time and a place for it, and it's helpful, they are not the Bible. They are not the words given to man and spoken by God. There is so much power in the actual words of the Bible. So I encourage you, read the Bible directly. Second, before you approach your reading, ask God to meet you in your reading invite him in personally to speak words of truth to your heart and to your spirit invite him to call you into a closer relationship with him and to uncover areas in scripture where you have disbelief or misunderstanding god wants us to speak to him i'm sorry god wants to speak to us he wants us to sit slowly and longingly with him don't rush your reading God wants you to meditate on his scriptures. Choose just one verse and and mull it over in your mind throughout the day. Ask God what he wants you to learn from the scripture as you repeat it over and over and over. Third, seek God and his story for who he is. Don't try to bring your own knowledge and understanding of the scripture, but come with an open heart and an open mind to soak in the mind of God. Spend time lingering over his words and digesting what you're reading and hearing. I'm not so sure that God wants to be a God that's consumed quickly. I was thinking about a lion who might take down a gazelle and how his prey, he just is ravenous and eating it up and doesn't pay attention to the beauty and the construction and probably even really what he's eating. He just devours it. But I think God wants to be lingered over, like how we might linger over a fine dessert when we go to a nice restaurant, or how we cherish and savor words and actions by someone we love. As you read through Psalms, that, as you read through books that aren't very story-oriented, like Psalms or Proverbs, say to God, God, what does this tell me about you? What does this tell me about my relationship with you? Tell me the things I need To know about you. And then finally, put yourself in the story. So when you're reading parts of the Bible that are more action or story oriented, put yourself in the story. Don't read it as an outside bystander, but imagine yourself there. For example, if you're reading the story of David and Goliath. Imagine what it would have been like to be one of those Israelite soldiers trembling with fear. And watching a little boy. Like David, walk up with courage and confidence and slay a beast. If you're reading stories about Jesus, like the passage we read today, think about what would it have been like to sit in the synagogue, pretend you are someone sitting in that synagogue, listening to someone from your hometown speak the way Jesus was speaking, with words of grace and instruction. What would it have smelled like in that synagogue? Who else would have been around you? What were your worries? What are your joys? And how would you have reacted if you had heard his words? What would your response have been? And so I challenge you what is your response today? Today, we are sitting here engaging the Word of God, and we have a choice to respond. We know that this story is God's story, the most perfect story, inspired writing by the very thoughts of God himself. It's expressing his heart and pointing us to his transcendence of Jesus. And yet, the Bible speaks so profoundly to our hearts. We can't help but be changed. So the worship team is going to come up, and in just a minute, Pastor Tim is going to lead us through communion today. And so we have an opportunity At this time, to reflect upon the position of our hearts toward the story of God, do we take this story and just layer it upon layer onto the many other stories in our lives? Or do we choose to make this story our story and allow it to transform our hearts to be more like Jesus?
1: Thank you, Lucinda. As we engage the story of God's word, this, but particularly the story of the cross, uh, I'm thankful for what God is doing in our hearts, shaping that story of God's grace in us. And part of that is through worship as, as we have been worshiping